Hello and welcome to Their Past, Our Future podcast. We are aimed to have Nick Perigini on the show today. He's a doctor of physical therapy and works with high-performing athletes and getting them back to their sport. How are we doing today, Nick? Doing good. Excited to be here. Excited to chat. There's nothing more that I enjoy than, uh, than talking shop uh, with, with my colleagues. So very excited to dive in and, and uh, talk about some cool stuff. Let's go. Me too. For sure. Yeah, we'd love that. Um, so just to get us started, uh, Nick, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, um, just about you and even how you got into PT? Yeah, yeah. What a, what a great question. I feel like I've got a, a few, you know, patients that ask me this every week. So I feel like I have this story pretty, pretty dialed in. Um, so I, I think the, the story wouldn't be complete without, you know, just recognizing that my mom has been a practicing physical therapist for 40 years right? Which is just unbelievable. And so, you know, growing up, um, you know, after my childhood, very active, obviously in sports, football, you know, baseball, soccer, the, the, the whole thing. And my parents were, were very involved in, uh, in coaching my youth sports. So I also remember my mom, you know, we'd be driving in the car and, you know, she'd see someone running on the side of the road and she's like, Nick, you know, look, look at that person's elbow, right? But like popping out. So just as an example that my family was, very big into technique, right. And performance, um, it, you know, growing up as a child. And I think that really shaped how I, you know, looked at movement and, and appreciated movement. But basically I had a, a fantastic, uh, you know, youth sports experience and, um, I fell in love with strength and conditioning, uh, in high school. I actually had a powerlifting um, team at my high school. And so, you know, we were doing squat bench deadlift, Olympic lifts, um, you know, from 14 years old, uh, from 14 years old, all the way in high school, going to powerlifting meets and, uh, learning, learning these movements. And that really shaped my love for strength and conditioning. So I went to uh, Temple university in Philadelphia and, uh, my freshman year, I remember I emailed maybe 30 gyms in the city and I said, Hey, just let me get in there. Let me clean some toilets. I don't care. Right. Let me just learn. And I want to, I want to, I want to coach people. I know the value of that, and I want to get my uh, I want to get some experience in that. And so, fortunately, I was able to get set up with an internship that really pulled a lot of information from Mike Boyle of uh, Strength and Conditioning, and also you know Gray Cook, right, and the whole FMS system. And so that was my first experience actually in personal training, which was an incredible foundation um, in you know movement science, in exercise prescription, in looking at and 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 analysis. Uh, analyzing movement. Um, and so all throughout school, I was studying kinesiology, right? Pre-physical therapy. And uh, with the intention of, hey, you know, either going into the strength and conditioning world, performance world, or sports science world, um, or potentially going into physical therapy. And so throughout undergrad, fortunately, I was able to have an internship with Temple Strength Conditioning, where I was able to work with 18, you know, division one sports teams, and also kind of you know, interact with athletes in this kind of gray area of rehab and also performance, which was fantastic. Um, and through that time, I also had experience in the CrossFit world, right? So coaching CrossFit and, and, uh, and training other coaches, how to, how to teach CrossFit. And so this combination of personal training, strength and conditioning, um, coaching CrossFit, it ultimately uh, led me to want to pursue my, my DPT and kind of just take it a step further. And, uh, you know, fortunately was able to go to Widener University, which is just outside of Philadelphia, 
And through that time, continued training individuals, working with active uh, adults and athletes. And in 2018, I finished up uh, with my DPT. And, and since then, I've been working for Precision Performance down here in the, in the greater Philadelphia area. And now I operate um, out of a you know, CrossFit gym, requisite fitness, where I'm seeing you know, primarily athletes and active adults specializing in Olympic lifting, CrossFit, powerlifting, distance running, and ultimately just people who want to stay on the move, right? That's like one of the most important things. Common denominator is, hey, you know, even if you don't identify as being an athlete, people that are researching their healthcare and being informed as an informed healthcare consumer, you know, they're, they're coming here because they understand that they're going to be told how to continue to perform their sport um, or activity, whether it's, you know, pickleball or running or whatever it is um, without just being saying, no, like, you know, rest ice and, and take a seat for six weeks. That's a little bit about my story. Yeah, I love it. And that gets me amped up for what's to come and hopefully my future. I'm hoping that, you know, I'll yeah. get to work with a lot of the active population like you are and, you know, you're, three years into it now and you seem to be as passionate and hyped up about it as ever. <laughs> yeah, man. I, and I think that's, um, you know, that's something I hear often, right. Is this, this thing of, I want to work with athletes, right. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you know, you just said it, I'm sure a lot of your classmates say it. I, you know, see people on the interwebs, you know, saying it, you know, I want to work, I want to specialize in athletes. And, you know, my advice to that is, you cannot wait for your degree to work with athletes, right? And, and, that, and that's actually the most important concept for anyone in school is if you're waiting for your degree to do something, you're going to be years behind, right? So how can you start making an impact right now in your community, in your neighborhood, or, you know, I'm Ethan, right, your, your Instagram profile? providing valuable content about something that you're actually passionate about or that you actually possess some kind of knowledge about. Um, and so there are so many people right, waiting, waiting, waiting to do this thing that in the back of their mind, in their heart, that they know they want to do, and they're making excuses to wait for the right time. And the scary thing is that there is no right time. When you get your degree, you're going to find another excuse to wait right? When you're a year in, when you're two years in, when you get your direct access license, you're going to find another excuse and reason to wait, right? So it's about, hey, if you want to do the thing, do the thing. Yeah. The right time is always now, right? Exactly. Exactly. And some, you know, and sometimes it takes, takes some uh, moments of, of clarity to understand that. But, um, you know, my general advice is, hey, especially for those of you who want to get into sports orthopedics and, you know, start problem solving with um, athletes, you know, you can't wait to get experience in that, right? It's going to be, it's kind of not, it's not too late once you get your degree, but, you know, getting in and, and watching coaches operate, watching coaches troubleshoot on the floor, that is the art of it, right? And, and we learn a lot of the science behind it, but the art of coaching and watching it in person, right? Watching beauty happen um, on, on the floor in regards to coaching athletes is really where physical ther therapists and students can really benefit and level up their practice. Yeah. 
That's beautiful. And I had to write down one of the quotes that you said, you cannot wait for your degree to work with athletes. So, you know, we got to start thinking about that now if we're students. And I also wanted to hit on more of the art of coaching mm. and, you know, even your philosophies on that, because there's lots of textbooks and research that really give an amazing foundation for training people in the most optimal ways. Yeah. What I feel when it comes to working with an individual, things can change a lot mm -hmm. because there's so many different factors. Can yeah. you go into that and how you handle the art of coaching? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a thesis question. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this, right. So, you know, one of, one of my kind of big rocks, um, you know, in my practice is this idea of how you make people feel. And, you know, when you think of especially, right, working with people in pain, um, how you make people feel is ex extremely important. Hmm. And I, the, sometimes the analogy I use is when I have kind of students here is, you know, I want you to, I want you to right now think of a teacher in high school, right, that really made an impact on you. Right. And probably within five, 10 seconds, you kind of think of that person, right? You think about what was, what was special about that person, right? What, what was actually special about that teacher, right? They made you feel good, right? You weren't afraid to fail, right? Or ask a question, right? They took time to actually talk things out and not make you feel stupid for not knowing something. They saw potential in you. And that kind of, that kind of feeling, you know, people don't forget, you know, and, and, and what also happens is you get the best of that person when you feel that, right? So when we talk about art of coaching um, in regards to those things, that is the number one thing on my mind when creating a relationship with a new patient, a new, you know, human, right, coming in that they've come in and it's gotten to the point where they've had to become so vulnerable that they're now asking for help through the healthcare system. Right. Imagine you guys, right. Having to get to a point where you have a problem, you have to ask for help, right. And, and put your health and trust in someone else's hands. Right. So I like to kind of put myself in that situation and, and, and feel that. And so again, the number one thing for me is, Hey, how do we make this person feel creating a comfortable environment? Right. Um, creating a, a, a position of opportunity in regards to what we can work on versus what we cannot work on um, and, and giving hope, right. And, and reassurance and ultimately a positive experience with movement. Right. And so when we come down to the art of coaching and we say, I'm, what I mean, coach, I mean, actually maybe coaching movement, right. Mm -hmm. Understanding that there is not going to be a, a right or wrong, but you do need to learn your own superpowers. And what I mean by that is, you know, Ethan, Joey, you both have things that make you very special, right? Whether you know it or not right now, right? And, you know, the reality is I think everyone's all, always on a mission to kind of 
understand and have self-awareness around what makes them special, right? And so one of my favorite quotes that I've, you know, kind of originated through my time is, you know, we can't copy our mentor's approach. And what I mean by that is, you know, Ethan, if you tried to practice exactly how I practiced, you'd be practicing my version worse, Hmm. right? So the art of coaching actually is you having a level of self-awareness to understand yourself, to actually maximize and leverage your gifts, which then allow you to maximize your patient's results. Yeah, well put, well put. Um, yeah, I totally agree on that. And, you know, it's like, I think there's always a fine line between looking up to somebody and then copying their style entirely. Um, and I, a question I kind of have based off of that yeah. is um, at what point do you think you cross that line where, you know, you're looking up to somebody yeah, and then – Next thing you know, you end up trying to do everything exactly like them. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there's there's this there's a there's a you know so let's put it in the context of being on a clinical rotation, right? What's what is the most important thing about you know being a CI? I can I can speak on that because I you know have students right? Is hey, I I first want to make sure that a student uh, shows competency, right? Hey, we're not going to hurt anyone. We're not going to put anyone in in danger. And I, uh, of course, want my students to be able to express themselves and practice how they want to practice. When I put myself in the shoes of when I was a student looking at my clinical instructors, you know, part of the game in a way is for them to trust you, you in some ways have to be able to replicate what they are doing, right? If, if you're able to say like, hey, I can play your game and I can execute that, right? There's, there's going to be a huge level of trust that's built early on, right? And I would say that once that trust is established, that's when you're able to evolve, right, in your clinical rotation and start, ex- I don't like the word experimenting, but I would say gravitating towards what you feel is best practice in your own world as your own clinician. Right. So there's this idea of, hey, when you enter a clinical rotation, the last thing you want to do is just like say, hey, you know, CI, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to do my thing because mine is the best way. You know, saying that as a student can, you know, ruffle some feathers and I'm all for that. But there needs to be a level of trust and, and competence that's established early on. So then you can start experimenting and gravitating towards your style of practice that you get to hopefully evolve. Um, you know, as you're thrown into the fire on a clinical rotation. So I think that you probably experience it the most when you're a student and you're just trying to get by by copying your, your CI's approach. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't, you know, challenge you in a way that lets your own practice evolve, right? And I'll also say that, you know, there are plenty of mentorships out there that teach rigid systems right? If this, then that, right? If you have this test, this is what you do for this exercise. Hey, here's how you restore, you know, this range of motion based on, you know, what you're seeing. And again, that's an example of trying to 
find the difference. And so that, this is a good example of complicated versus complex, right? So a system um, that's templated in a flow chart kind of style uh, treats the body as if, if it were complicated, right? Uh, an example of a complicated system is a vehicle or a car engine where there are you know, thousands of parts that are all interacting with each other in a predictable, repeatable manner. And if one of those parts is dysfunctional or faulty, right, the engine doesn't work. And so this is traditionally what we, what we think about as the biomedical approach, right? Where, hey, we have a faulty part, the system doesn't work, right? Boom, we have to fix it, right? Or that's also what these like kind of flow charts do. Hey, if, this is, if you find this, do this versus a complex system, right? Has seemingly unrelated variables interacting with each other, right? That creates some kind of outcome. And so again, that's where practicing uh, more in, in kind of in line with the biopsychosocial model and understanding, like we said, the art of coaching, right? And how we make people feel in addition to talking about variables that are in our control that may seem unrelated can lead to positive outcomes. And again, there is no template for that, right? But there are things that we can start looking at that allow us to address issues from uh, uh, various places. So again, not copying someone, but taking big rocks right? Taking things that you really like, right? And, and, and value and blending that into your own, you know, seasoning, right? Because we're all eating chicken, all of us. We're all eating chicken, right? We're all working with different spices, right? You got to find, you got to find that spice. You got to find that spice that, that's yours, your signature sauce. Mm, I like that. That chicken analogy, I think, is the per the like most perfect thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're all you know, we're, and you know, I, I can't, I, I don't know if I can claim credit for that, but uh, you know, the the thing that I've I've heard be used, right? We're all working with the same ingredients, right? And that's like kind of the the uh, the chef analogy, right? We're all we're all working with the same ingredients. How we dress it up is what is what makes it ours, right? And again, that goes back to, in my opinion, um you know, there is a level of, you know, self-awareness that needs to occur to understand, right, what makes, you know, you uh, have superpowers, right, and how you are able to leverage those things in clinical practice to, to achieve the desired results uh, for, 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 for you and also your patients. Yeah, yeah. And I think, Hitting on all that was really powerful for me to hear. I think one concern I have for my future orthopedic clinical rotation is, you know, what if my kind of philosophies that I've built are, you know, in the opposite direction mm -hmm. as my future CI? And mm -hmm. I'm curious about how handling some of those conversations without ruffling too many feathers. Yeah. You know, do you have any input on yeah. that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it, you have to look at that as such a great opportunity, actually. Hmm. 
here and here's why when you know you start forming a thought process right you know you kind of think about it as you're 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 digging yourself a little kind of you know path right and maybe when you're listening to someone speak or watching someone practice you're starting to realize like okay this person is like not on the same path as me in, in their kind of clinical reasoning and <clears throat> I think that the more you become secured in your own path and more kind of cemented and, and rigid in your own path, uh, it's harder and harder and harder to understand uh, a different approach, right? So actually, you taking time to truly understand your clinical instructor's approach, hmm. right? And, and, and with a very, with an open mind and open heart and understanding it. And taking the time to not be dismissive mm. and to actually get better at it than he is or them. And what I, what I, what I, what I mean by that is you actually understanding a totally different system will make your system even stronger. Yeah. Right. And so instead of saying, all right, you know, this person's, you know, a Maitland therapist, right? Or McKenzie therapist, or, you know, whatever it is, they're doing joint mobs, they're just soft, soft tissue based, whatever it is, learn that, right? Go all, like, go all in on it and understand when that would be valuable. Because guess what? Everything is valuable at some time. Understand when it would be valuable. Understand the explanations of it. Or I, I the, the, the crazy thing that, you know, I think is, I think that a lot of things do work. Um, a lot of approaches work, a lot of interventions work, but probably not for the reason that we uh, think. And so the challenge is, okay, my clinical instructor, or even I got this outcome. And we think it, and we're using the explanation that we that we got the outcome because of this. But truly, what else could be going on? that allowed for that positive outcome, right? And sometimes, right, it's not about like what you did, you know, it's about, hey, like past three days, they took a break from their, their activity, right? They only did their PT exercises. They actually slept the past three nights. Hey, their finals are over, right? And so we did this approach, we did this like, you know, mob or whatever, or this manip or whatever we did, this exercise, and hey, they come back next session, they're feeling good, right? So what actually led to the outcome? Hmm. So yeah. that's, 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 what, that's what I challenge you with. Like before writing off anything, go down, that, go down that path and understand it and understand when it would be valuable because there are going to be things, even if it's 10% of things that you'll take away from any clinical instructor that will be extremely valuable at some point. Yeah, I, I really love that answer. And what I like that you brought up is just how you can't just strike down any approach. No, um, no. As you see it, because I feel like nowadays just things get really, um, I guess, dichotomy. Like they fall under a dichotomy. Like yeah. it's a yes or it's a no. And yeah. It kind of bums me out because it's like, <laughs> no, like this world is not black and white. I mean, just as physical therapy isn't black and white. So we have to 
take that approach to it. Like, yeah, man, it's kind of like a hodgepodge of things that can work. So um, I really love that you said that though. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's hard, man. It's hard. It's hard. It's confusing. You know, there's so, there's, there's so many things, there's so many things in, in, you know, we're all, and, and everyone's trying to figure it out, right? Everyone's trying to figure it out. Thanks. Be figuring it out till I'm like 72 probably or later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It's, that's, that's the game. Right. But you know, when you think you got to figure it out, you know, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's on point. But Nick, I kind of want to roll into mm. leadership talk because I know you take leadership roles on with your company, uh, Precision Performance Therapy. Is that Correct. the right name for it? Right. And I'm just curious on how those leadership opportunities opened up for you. What did you do to seek those opportunities? Yeah. Um, you know, so that's just a, it's a great question. You know, it's like there, I think as a, as a, as a student and as a new grad, uh, there are a lot of opportunities to do your job and live your life. And I want to, I want to actually quickly tell a story about this. Um, when I was a first year PT student, I had sent out a compiled list of maybe 200 Twitter accounts that I was following at the time. And I, I posted in my, my classes, Facebook group, you know, some absolute legends on there. And cause I was, I was obsessed, you know, I was obsessed with learning and learning from, you know, just like you guys, right? Like learning from the great therapists and understanding their past, like how they got there. I always like really, really admired that. And I always thought people posting things that were in the trenches um, and just putting out their thoughts, like what an unbelievably powerful use of the internet. Hmm. That just always, always, always amazed me that I could just, hey, follow Mike Reinald or see what, you know, Dave Tilly was up to or, you know, see what, see what these, these, these people who I really looked up to were, were talking about. And also the ability for me to quickly interact with them. But side note, no one cared right? No one cared that I, I put it out there, right? No one, no one thought it was exciting. Um, and actually, that was a big switch in my life. Uh, because I had been just living with so much excitement around uh, my future profession. And I, I, there was a line right there where I realized that, um, you know, work is not work is not life, right? Your profession does not define you. And you don't need to be a great physical therapist to be happy in your life. Mm. And I think that's an incredibly important message for a, lot, for a lot of people to understand, right? You can have a family, um, your dog, your hobbies. You should want to go fish every day, right? Whatever it is. And you can live an amazing quality of life and have so much happiness. And at the end of the day, that's an extremely, extremely important concept because <clears throat> what's going to happen is your success professionally is not, cannot be tied to your personal level of happiness. I'll just put that out there. Okay. Um, 
But guess what? For myself, I've stayed on that path of I've been excited about what I do. I continue to be excited about what I do. I also really try and ride a fine line of making sure, you know, what I do in my life or what I do in my work is not directly tied to my level of self-worth and my happiness. But <clears throat> to capitalize on, you know, my, my passion and my purpose for the profession, um, I have a responsibility to continue to pay it forward uh, to people who inspired me. And so being able to do that through a leadership position where, you know, we're, you know, mentoring students, mentoring our new grads, um, helping people, you know, troubleshoot and problem solve and um, understand what it, you know, means to be a professional uh, in, in the industry is something, you know, that I care about, right? It's very meaningful to me. It's important. Um, and so, again, I think when you, when you live your life and you have space in your life to, you know, step into leadership roles, uh, and you have the experience and the will and the, the capacity, you know, you have a responsibility to, to do those things. Um, you don't have to, right? And it's not something that uh, is required of you, but uh, when you have the space to do it, you know, I, I'm able to take a lot of pride in, 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 in doing that for our company. Yeah. And that's something that I battle with myself, the topic you brought up, you know, there's, my career and physical therapy and then there's like my life which they are intertwined yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's hard it's hard it's hard um you know they're and again not everyone you know the reality is you know you're an outlier right joey you probably too in that regard in that uh most americans uh are not intertwined in their job and in their life right those things are very very separate mm. right yeah. Um, it, again, yeah. It's, 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 it's important to understand that, right. It's important to understand that before it's <laughs> not before it's too late, but it is, it is something to just understand about yourself and the situation, you know, that, you know, people like ourselves find our, find ourselves in. Yeah. And I feel like lots of times people really have to make a choice. You know, lots of people are passionate about physical therapy but it, if you want to really become great, I mean, you know, this is kind of just from what I've heard from people who are great at what they do. It takes obsessing over something for, you know, a long period of time with focused effort. And I don't think that means that you have to kick everything yeah. out of your life, but that does mean you do have to make sacrifices in some areas, whether Maybe it be don't going out on the weekends or, you know, maybe losing an hour of, hour of sleep every once in a while and things like that. So there are some sacrifices that I kind of battle with. It's like, should I, you know, sacrifice this obsession of mine or sacrifice some life stuff or an obsession of mine? So. Yeah, I was just kind of spewing some thoughts out. Yeah, <laughs> no, man. Listen, that's and that's important, right? That that is the reflection that I think um, the earlier that you can think about it, probably the better, right? For your, for your overall, um, you know, happiness and success. And you know, I come from I come from you know I've had experiences in my life where 
uh, I've been addicted to working really hard, right? And to just go, right? And kind of that, that student mode where, hey, you're over-caffeinated, you know, you're underslept, right? And you're just, you know, in, I'm doing air quotes for people listening on the podcast, right? Grind mode. And the reality is like, that is unsustainable. It's unhealthy. You're not the best version of yourself um, for you, for your friends, for your family, you know, for your patients, right? And I know other people, you know, on this podcast have, have talked about that concept of, hey, you know, again, for, for people who are, you know, passionate about the career want, and want to be successful, probably the most important thing that you can do is pour from a, from a, from a full cup. Right. And so, hey, that means finding the habits, finding the routines that allow you to be your best self. Right. So you can continue to make this a very sustainable career. Right. And it can be. Right. But you can't do it from a place where you don't have power. And to build personal power, you need to make sure that your habits and your routines are aligned with what you want in your life. I totally agree with that. I love how you mentioned the grind too. Um, Cause it reminded me of a conversation I had with some friends like some time ago, like, you know, everyone loves the grind. Everyone like raves about the grind, but like you said, it's not sustainable and it's not no. something that's meant to do forever. You know, no. eventually you have to, <laughs> I don't know how to put this, but like for lack of a better term, um, it's kind of, you know, learn what works best for you, grow up and like hone in on what works for you. Yeah. I think, I think the thing is, right. You, you don't, ha- it doesn't have to be a struggle, right. You want to dominate gracefully. Hmm. Right. And, and, and to, and to do that, right. That's, you know, that's time management, right. That's, that's prioritizing things, right. It's also making sure you're in a, in a very clear headspace. Right. And, and, and that's what, that's what those things allow you to do is, doesn't have to be this struggle with resistance that you put in the way that you create for yourself. Yeah. And I think you mentioned habits and routines. I think that's one of the most powerful ways to be product, very, very productive, you know, quote unquote, obsess over your craft without having to be in grind mode all the time, because you in a way are, training your brain and automating, you know, these few hours of the day where you do these things, whether it be, you know, meditation or your exercise or self-care, or maybe it's just your work in the morning or your content you create that in the morning. And just having that routine of doing that will free up a lot more time in the day to, you know, just live your life in the ways you want to. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, you know, that, that, that exact process has been one of the biggest changes in my life, you know, that has allowed me to uh, continue to be in this space and, and, and mindset, right. And, and level of um, energy, you know, it's like my, my superpower is, is, you know, in my kryptonite is my enthusiasm, right. And that if left unchecked, you know, it, it runs wild and then it also runs me to the ground. And so being able to be clear, and um, give myself space for uh, focused work and, you know, focused reflection, whether it's gratitude, journaling, meditation, um, my, you know, my morning routine, like as 
cliche and soft as I used to think those things were, or those things are big, big rocks in my life that allow me to hold space for others. Right. And like, again, in my, in my work, in my practice, in the culture that I try and cultivate in, in my setting and in my practice and uh, within my, you know, patients, um, I'm unable to do that. I'm unable to get deep with people um, in regards to pain, right? And, and tough, tough things if I'm not in that space. And what happens is when you talk to people who are in pain all day, that can very easily creep into your life, okay? And I'm going to try, try and draw some connections here. Um, that maybe kind of encompass everything that we just talked about in the last 40 minutes. And so when you're in a, in a, in a mindset where you're already um, on a reactive mode and you're not operating from a clear, uh, powerful state and you're working with people in healthcare that are coming to you and they are in pain, right? And they have negative self-talk and they have self-limiting beliefs, and they have big problems in their life that they are telling to you that you are now almost responsible for because you know they're putting that energy onto you. You have very little you know, room for yourself, right? And even for your patient. So being able to have that room to operate and to give a clear recommendation, clear advice, to be able to even have space for listening um, to our patient, that starts with you. And I think we're a lot, and then to, to, to mention on the biopsychosocial model versus biomedical model, what leads to burnout, in my opinion, this is not right, not wrong. What leads to burnout in physical therapists, in my opinion, well, one, the system, if you're seeing, you know, 40 patients a day, obviously impossible, but when physical therapists are in a biomedical approach and are trying to fix these things, these very specific things, and because they don't have the space to even listen to the emotional pieces surrounding pain, the identity, right, the social impact of someone coming to us in pain, we don't have space to listen to that and address those things and to talk through those things. We just default to fixing these little things without actually addressing the person. And guess what? People don't get better that way. And then what happens is we think, okay, you know, we let this person down or this person's not compliant, right? They're not doing the thing that we told them to do. Uh, when in reality, like maybe that's only 5% of the pie chart right? It's not going to be the thing that gets them to move. Behavior change, habit formation, reframing their situation, right? Adapting positive beliefs, whether it's increasing physical activity or making modifications in their current activity or adjusting to chronic workload volumes, right? Or just moving a little bit differently. Hey, try this instead, right? So those are, that is, that is the connection, right? Of, hey, one, we need to be able to have space for people, right? That means, Ethan, or Ethan, like you were talking about, having those routines, 
having that clarity, having, you know, purpose and passion that's controlled. And then understanding how biopsychosocial model um, allows us to be able to receive this very important information from our patients and then identify what are the high percentage plays here in regards to helping this person move in the right direction, understanding when biomedical or movement faults or motor control or strength or positioning, when those things matter, but knowing that, hey, we're not going to be tied and married to fixing this person from a very specific, you know, PSIS test, right? Or like, you know, putting someone's spine back in place with a PA mob with 10 pounds of pressure to their L4 transit process. So yeah. those, those are the things, right, that, that, that uh, for me, being able to tie that all together allows me to operate, you know, at, at high levels um, with excitement about what I do. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think those are all powerful points. And something that you hit on was behavior change. You know, we're working with patients who are in pain all day. And lots of times, one of the most powerful interventions will be behavior change itself because, we're, you know, we're only with them for a percent of the day or percent of the week. And I'm curious on how you motivate people where you learned your motivational interview yeah. and things like that. Maybe you could give us some direction there. Yeah. 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 So man, that is, that is a, that's a tough, that's a really tough question, but okay. it's good. And, and, you know, I, I've been, I've been giving feedback to my students that, um, you know, I, that I do this in my, in my initial evaluations and, you know, as, as I go on, and uh, it's something that I'm trying to reflect on more because I do think that my experience in uh, personal training and also sales to some extent um, has influenced, I think, how I, how, I, how I handle these conversations. But there, there are some, there are, I'll, I'll say, two techniques that I would say I'm intentional about. And one is called forecasting. And this is, this is a technique where obviously someone in a tough situation um, is presenting to us. And, you know, maybe they're, you know, kind of, again, not in this, they don't have the um, belief that they can do it or that I can help them or that they even need to be doing it, right? Maybe they're just, they're going for the ride. And so it's about understanding, hey, if understanding what is the current cost of this issue on your life? And when I say cost, it could be financial, right? It very well could be that someone's disability or pain or lack of uh, operating at, at high levels is costing them money. I would bet that there is also an emotional cost an emotional cost for not being able to participate in desired activity, not being able to um, be with people that they care about in a social dynamic that's meaningful to them, right? Um, there's also a, a mental cost, right? There's, there is the idea of, I have fear around this thing that I am unable to do that. And all of those things, again, are associated with the cost. What is, you know, right now, what is this costing us? Right. And so 
maybe developing some emotion around the current situation, right? And actually feeling and acknowledging what is going on, right? And then having this idea of, okay, you know, let's fast forward uh, a week, a month from now. And let's imagine, right? We don't, we don't, we're not dealing with this. What are the things that we would be doing? And how, and actually, how would that feel? I want you to think about, and that feeling, I want you to visualize yourself doing the activity, right? That you feel like you cannot do right now. And how is that going to feel? Right. And so this idea of visualization, putting yourself in the moment, experiencing the feelings that are associated with the task or the activity or the idea of having, you know, no pain um, is something that I think I, I, I do tend to do to understand like, hey, that is not here right now. Fortunately, here is how we get there. And that's called building the, the roadmap, right? Providing the roadmap. Here's what it's going to feel like to get there. Here's what it's going to look like to take those steps. Oh, by the way, there are going to be ups and downs, right? And, and this is what's going to happen because every single person I work with goes through a similar process to this. And that's okay. And it's going to be expected. And you know what? Actually, that obstacle, we're going to learn so much from it. And the lessons that you learn in that process, you're going to be able to take with you forever. Um, the, other, the other piece is a negative forecast, right? It's imagine what it looks like to be dealing with this, you know, for another month, right? Two months. Now, that's, a, that's a more of a negative um, skew to the situation. I try to not do that. Um, but sometimes if I truly do feel like I can help someone, and there is resistance uh, around that. That's just something that you know you can you can you can use as well. But I, I generally tend to hey, let's look at the future. Let's look at what it's going to feel like, what it's going to taste like, what's going to smell like. Let's put ourselves there. Okay, we can get so you can imagine it. Now the great news is, you know what I do is create plans. Right, I create the roadmap. And if you don't think you can do it. That's normal because I got, I'm here with you to be able to do that. Right. So people are, you know, either not going to trust you, not going to trust your company, not going to trust themselves. Right. If you have trust in you and you have social proof and a reputation built up around you and your company, but they don't trust themselves, that's where you have to reassure them that, like, hey, this is not, this is, you're not here alone. Right. We're here with you to be able to get this thing done. Yeah. And I hear about like selling physical therapy. And <laughs> a, yeah. Yeah. It has an interesting connotation to it, but I think it's extremely important that we know how to sell physical therapy because we all know the value of physical therapy. Yeah. And if we can, if we're not able to sell, we can't provide mm. that value. Mm, mm, so mm, mm, these mm. are very useful techniques. Yes. That is, that is money. Now I'll say this. The biggest sell is nothing you can say, right? The biggest sale tactic in physical therapy is nothing you can say, and it has everything to do with how you make someone feel, okay? And again, everything matters. And so what I mean by that is your ability to coach movement and understand biomechanics. Yeah, I said the B word. 
and understand levers and torque and regressions, progressions, loading, positioning, right? Proximal mechanics of, of hip and rib cage. All of these things matter because if you can give someone a positive experience with movement and you can get and unlock the benefits of the most powerful drug in the world, exercise, resistance training, a little sweat on the forehead, the heartbeat pumping, right? Muscles burning, feeling things you never felt before. And all of a sudden having your expectations violated because you didn't think you could do this because your body was so fragile. And now we're doing this thing and it feels good, right? What else can I do, right? What else did I limit myself on? And that is the greatest sell in physical therapy. Because you can't say you have a plan. You can't say this is how it's going to go and not match it with the feeling. Totally. <laughs> and that's, that's how it all comes together, right? There, I think there are so many people talking about these two things in such polar ends of the spectrum. That's at least my, my take on it. Um, but that's how this day all comes back. Everything matters. Mm. Absolutely. Um, one thing I keep thinking about whenever I heard all this and just from a post I saw from, I think it was either you or another page or another page you're with um, was the idea of education and de-education. Um, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah something two on that. Things that go very hand in hand. And um, yeah. more specifically, I was curious, what does the de-education process look like? <laughs> uh, this is an, an extremely tactful conversation. What I mean by tactful is it's uh, when, you know, Joey, so you probably have a belief around something and you know what it's not your it's not your fault that you have that belief actually right it's because you learned that thing from various sources and you probably thought about it and you deemed it to be true you, you deem it to be the truth right so it's not actually your fault that you have these beliefs that you're holding on to that actually create truth in your world or your reality. Um, and so same thing with our patients, right? Coming in is that they all have expectations around their body, around their pain, around their, their condition. And it's not their fault for actually the beliefs that they hold, right? They, they've learned about their world, their reality through imperfect lessons from imperfect teachers, doctors, parents, coaches, aunts, aunts and uncles, YouTube, Instagram, right? Authority figures, teachers. That is where we learn about things. And it also, a lot of those beliefs in our true inner self are formed before the age of eight. Um, that's our personality. But things like, for example, how you were brought up around injury, right? When you scraped your knee on, running on the playground, right? Like what was the response from 
your teachers, your parents, et cetera. Those things shape our reality. So when a patient comes in with um, thoughts that their, their back is out of alignment or that the pain that they're experiencing during exercise uh, or the cracking in their shoulder is because they have arthritis and they're going to need a, you know, whatever, a, a, some kind of surgery because they have crack in their shoulder. It's not their fault. Right. So we can't like get mad. There's only things that get like mad and it's like, whoa, hey, can't get mad here. Let's understand where people learn the things that they believe to be true. And we're never going to say that's wrong. And we're never going to say that the person who told you that is wrong. Because when you discredit, let's say, hey, my, my last doctor told me that this. The last thing we ever want to do is say, well, your doctor was wrong. Because when we say that, we're actually saying, you know what? You're not smart enough to actually be able to critically think about what this, what this person told you. Right? And again, this is a very kind of tactful situation where we can do all the explaining in the world around imaging and the correlation between you know, pain and structural damage. We can do all the education in the world around these things, around how pain doesn't equal harm. But until we actually start showing our patients and having them experience the benefits of these things about modulating pain through whatever we do, manual therapy, exercise, aerobic training, mindfulness, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. So de-education this point of acknowledging someone's current beliefs not saying they are wrong, providing them with an experience or feeling, and then capitalizing on that experience and feeling with re-education, right? And say, actually, truly, if your hip labrum was the thing here, you wouldn't have been able to do that goblet squat at 80 pounds for five reps, right? Like, maybe this is just about like a load and tolerance and guess what? We're slowly going to build your tolerance back up through this thing, right? Instead of, you know, if your hip was out of alignment here, like, I'm not sure you'd be, you know, knocking out that goblet squat. Like, that looks pretty good, right? So how do we say you're not wrong or you are wrong, right? Without saying it and having them actually put the pieces together without us having to say anything, okay? That is the, the tact of de-education and re-education. Yeah, I've actually heard one physical therapist say in this de-education process, you can ask about their beliefs and like maybe what their doctors told them. And you can ask, does that make sense to you? And, you know, they may have heard three different things from three different providers and then they can do kind of the critical thinking on their own to be like, huh, maybe, yeah, maybe that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that was yeah. just an interesting thing I've heard. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um I think the concept there is make the patient the hero. And what and what that what that means is they need to be the one coming to the realization, right? Of oh, okay. Like, this is kind of what's happening. This, I'm, I'm learning, I'm experiencing. And all of a sudden they start telling you things, right? About their body, right? About, about their pain, about their symptoms, about, you know, changes. 
And that's, that's the show, right? That's the show is to keep, make the patient the hero, right? I'll also say this, a lot of the concepts, one, so one of the books that probably has shaped um, my approach the most is, you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale, Dale Carnegie. And I read that book early in college. And, you know, fortunately, I grew up in a, in a family where um, being, you know, personal and being, you know, friendly and like always using first names, right? Always greeting people, you know, hey, the handshakes, like always make people comfortable, always make people welcome. Um, you know, it was kind of a big part in my, in my upbringing, but actually reading the book kind of like was like, oh, wait a minute. Like you can actually be intentional about a lot of these things, right? And you can actually put a lot of these practices in, in place and be intentional about it. And so I'll say that that book is kind of a staple. Um, and I, you know what's crazy? I think the book was written in like the 1930s. And you open it up and it's unbelievably relevant still. And it's extremely powerful. So if you haven't, if, you, if, if some of these, you know, kind of concepts today are um, kind of resonating with you, I encourage you to, to check out that book, right? It's extremely powerful. And, uh, you know, it's just, a, it's just a staple. And I think reading that book can, can unlock a lot and like make sense of a lot of things that maybe you don't even know about yourself that you're doing, but it's actually putting it in, in words and in, in, a, in, a form, in a formula. Yeah, and we'll go ahead and link that book in the show notes. But I have a, one final question for you, Nick. I know we've covered yeah. a lot today. So this is a question we ask all of our guests. What is your definition of a great physical therapist? Man, such, such, a, great, such a great question. Yeah, man, I think it's, you know, kind of following on this, you know, topic of, you know, how we make people feel, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it's so much more than movement, right? It's so much more than pain, right? It's so much more. And I think just like the example of how I had us recall the teacher in your life, right, that you can remember right now that made an impact on you. We think about the qualities that that person had and that person gave you, right, that believed in you, that literally set up the rest of your adult life because they had some belief in you. And so when I think of a great physical therapist, you know, it's someone who can show you the opportunity that you have to accomplish right, to overcome, to be more outside the walls of the clinic, right? And our job is to violate people's expectations, which means someone thought they couldn't do something, we show them they can, and then they're able to ask themselves, what else, right? What else did I limit myself on? And what else can I do, right? Because the more that we can break through those things, the more we're able to provide a transformational uh, experience. Right? So more than movement, way, way more than movement. All right. That's perfect. I love it. It's uh, always about the whole person for sure. It's a, a great concept, but uh, we definitely appreciate having you on Nick. You killed it. You dropped 
a bunch of bombs on us that we'll definitely keep in our back pockets. And we also just want to ask, where can our listeners find you if they have questions or want to see some content that you're putting out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, pretty active on the Instagrams. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, you know, posting on there and, and going back and forth with, uh, with colleagues all day. So yeah, uh, Nick Perugini, uh, dot DPT on Instagram, um, on Twitter, Nick Perugini PT. And then if you want to shoot me an email, if you want to connect on any more, um, you know, serious or in-depth questions, um, nperugini.dpt at gmail.com. I'm sure we can get those linked in the, in the show notes as well. Yep. Yep. We will. We will. All right. That's a wrap. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Great times. We appreciate you so much for listening to the greatest physical therapist podcast. And we want to ask that if you've been enjoying the show to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on Spotify, you can share it to your Instagram story and tag us at TGPT underscore podcast. Thank you guys so much. We love you all. Have an amazing day. Peace.